It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au or whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Matt Grantham and joining me today is Anthony Daniel. How are you, Anthony? Well, mate, how are you? Very good. And uh, who have we got in the studio with us today? Yeah, residential rooftop solar has been a juggernaut in Australia, but so far it's been a phenomenon largely restricted to owner-occupiers. and Millions of renters have been shut out from this market. Our Matter Solar is a Melbourne-based startup looking to change all that, and today we're joined in the studio by their CEO and founder, Chris Maracas. Hello, Chris. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Our Great pleasure. to have you on the show. We always like to start these interviews by getting a bit of a background on you and your professional background before going into some of the stuff you're working on now. So can you enlighten us? Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been in the technology industry for a very long time. I always say I started at the same time as Bill Gates, but I haven't retired. Um, (laughs) You haven't got a foundation at all? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. No, uh, but I'm a coder. I'm an old programmer and in a language called C. Mm-hmm. And basically, I've been involved with startups uh, for most of my life and transitioned out of those into corporate and back again. Wow. Wow. Okay. And uh, how long has Matter Solar been about? So, we started nine years ago with the concept of smart energy. Uh, we built the first energy management system using our technology platform. And I think we're the first Internet of Energy company in Australia. Well, wow, that was pretty early. So what was it? Was it that managing energy inside commercial buildings? Was that quite kind of what got you into the space in the first place? No, we, we uh, actually saw this convergence between technology, energy, smart meters, and we thought that the world's going to change quite dramatically. And we saw an opportunity to move into what we saw as decentralised generation, basically. Which is what everyone's talking about now, right? And it's become become very sexy over the last 12, 18 months, that's for sure. Chris, one of the the problems that that has plagued the space, frankly, um, over the last, you know, sort of period of time is it's very easy for people that own their houses to be able to buy solar, but it's much more difficult for people who are renters or, uh, you know, to to be able to access that, that technology. Can you sort of just briefly outline why that is and, and how your solution sort of fits into that problem yeah that into that that's, space it's a that's a good question there's a there's a problem in the solar or in the rental space called the split incentive problem and the split incentive problem basically is a, a renter's not going to spend a lot of money improving the home because they're not going to be there long enough to see the benefits and conversely the landlord is not going to invest in in something like solar uh, because they can't get a financial reward out of doing it. So there's sort of this stalemate where either you know, both parties aren't going to spend some money for something that's worthwhile doing. And so that split incentive problem is the barrier for renters to get into the market. And to give you an idea, in Australia, there's about, let's say, 1.7 million homes that have got rooftop solar, and that's probably around 28% of, of owner-occupied there's less than 1% of homes that are rental properties that have got solar. 
So whenever you see a home with, with solar panels on the roof, odds on it's an owner-occupied home, not a rental home. So would an owner yeah, not see the benefit of putting solar on the roof unless they can make some income in some way because they're not going to be able to offset their, their usage because they're not living there? And they, they obviously don't see a lot of, say, resale value. They wouldn't be able to just say, oh, yeah, I can definitely add five grand to the value of this when I sell it. And I might not sell it for ages anyway. So is that kind of what's going on in their minds? Yeah, so so they'll only do something. Well, the reason people invest in, in investment properties is they want to make money. Uh, and that's what really motivates property investors. And for them, it's... You or, know, or the negative gearing, we should make that clear. <laughs> yeah, and look, that creates an interesting <laughs> issue, Anthony, about the ownership of, of solar, that the fact that you can negatively gear it effectively, you just um, put it on the asset and effectively you're able to negative gear that um, that asset on top of the roof as well. Yeah, so what, what we've done is because we're involved in the, the Internet of Things space, we've mm. built this technology, the technology allows you to monitor things, to control things and to monetize things. And so what we believe is there's a separation with, with these uh, Internet of Things where you own something and you use something. And because you use something, you can be billed for what you use. What we found was by using our technology in this space, we could create a whole new market called solar for rentals. And essentially by putting the technology in, a property investor can earn an income and a tenant can get cheap electricity. And it works really well. Yeah, so the, the PPA or the power purchase agreement is is quite popular model in, in solar installations in, in commercial contexts. So you have configured or customised it for use as uh, with renters in a residential space. Is that effectively what you've done? Uh, sort of. Uh, our technology is used in solar PPAs, uh, but solar PPAs basically... The owner of the solar system is financing that solar system and recouping their investment through a PPA. The difference in this is that a landlord becomes a utility. So the reason someone would get into a solar PPA is they can't afford to finance a solar asset. But for a residential home, it's around five to six grand for a five kilowatt system and a a property investor can easily afford the finance. What that means is, I'll give you some numbers and and hopefully that'll that'll give you an appreciation. There's a huge difference between what you can generate power using solar on a property versus what you can get off the grid. And so for a property investor, we can put a five kilowatt system onto their home and it would cost them around five to six cents a kilowatt hour over 10 years. A tenant or someone living in a home typically pays anywhere from 30 cents to, depending on where you live, it can go up to 50 cents. The difference between those two prices is what we call a spread. And that spread is massive in some places. Like if you're living in Adelaide, it's massive. If you're living in Brisbane, it's massive. In Melbourne, it's less. But that provides an opportunity for someone to make money. What our job is, is really to share that value between the landlord and the tenant so that the tenant makes some savings and the landlord makes some money. And if you do it fairly, both gain out of it and both win out of it. And essentially, it opens up a whole new market. It's a massive market. I mean, it's 30% of people rent. And in Australia, you're looking at close to 2 million properties that could have this put onto them. And so, Chris, following on from your talk there about, you know, 50 cents in some case, that's assuming you, you're able to sort of use that extra capacity that, you, that you're generating from solar. What do you do then on those days when people are out, not home? What do you do with that surplus capacity in terms of do you have to stick it in the grid for a feed-in rate? How do you manage that problem? 
So we, we do export the energy into the grid, and for that, people get a different reward. But that's Obviously not, not as good as 50 cents, though. <laughs> no, that's not the motivating factor for a landlord. A landlord could sell the energy to a tenant for 20 cents a kilowatt hour, and the feed-in could range anywhere from 5 cents up to 15 cents. In Melbourne, it's about... 11 cents. So you get more by using solar power and displacing other forms of energy. Yeah, so you you put the needle in a specific spot where the owner will get a benefit compared to the feed-in tariff, but the renter still getting is still getting something that is more valuable than, than off the grid. Yes, so there's a, there's a word that I use that scares people called internal rate of return, IRR. Basically, that's the interest rate you make on your investment. A landlord can make something like 29% uh, IRR or return on on a five and a half thousand outlay, and that's phenomenal. And, and yeah, I'll just uh, put some numbers on that I've, with my finance hat on here for a minute. That's about a three year payback, bit a bit, bit a little bit over a three year payback, which not, is not not as good as Bitcoin. No, no, well, really. <laughs> not <laughs> right at the now. moment. But you know, in terms of private, that's a private equity return, though, Chris. That's, that's pretty a, good. It's a relatively risk free private equity return. It, there. And and basically for that, the landlord can give the tenant something like a twenty percent discount off the best price that a tenant can get off the grid. So the tenant only pays for solar energy they use and they pay 20% less. That's usually the figure. And depending on where you are, could be more, but, but essentially it's an amazing return. So, so from a landlord's perspective, uh, what motivates them is a really good return. They also do something good for the tenant. In return, the tenant gains, and it's a really good way to improve the relationship between the landlord and the the tenant. Mm. So the way you would size it would be trying to just hit that so that most of the time it's going to be used um, by the tenant, or at least during the daytime hours. But do you also maybe put based on perhaps when the tenant is there? I can imagine that if if, if you're a tenant and you're not home during the day and you're working, that there wouldn't be a lot of benefit or unless, I mean, obviously your fridge is running, but there's plenty of things that you would usually do at night that you won't get the benefit of the solar. So do, do you take those kinds of things into account? We do. We've come up with some innovative products or pricing plans for tenants. One of them, we call it unlimited. It's a fixed price uh, solar energy plan for a tenant. So a tenant gets a bigger discount if they commit to buying a block of energy. It's the same way you buy data. Mm. Uh, and, And basically what a tenant can do then is shift some of that energy use into into that block. You'll incentivize them to do that. Yeah. And so who are the people that usually approach you? Are they usually renters or, or owners? Well, we get a mixture, but, but predominantly it, it's the property investor. We also work with real estate agents. And, okay. And, and basically uh, the real estate agent has a relationship between uh, both the, the renter and the landlord, but it's mainly the landlord that, that's really interested in doing this. The tenants, they don't get to hear about it much because they're, they're not really looking for it. Well, just level. to sort of follow up on that point there, uh, Chris, so at the moment, obviously, everyone gets one bill. Under your system, how does that interact from a, a sort of a renter's point of view? Do they get two bills? Do they get one from the utility and one from you? How does that exactly. sort of system um, interact? So, so depending on which product they sign up to, they'll get a bill for solar electricity mm-hmm. and they'll get their normal bill from their grid, from the grid retailer. The grid retailer, they'll always have that bill. So if it's a rainy day, a cloudy day, they'll always cons- or at night, they'll always consume energy. What tends to happen is their energy bill that goes to the energy retailer is reduced and they uh, spend some money with the landlord on the second bill. 
And so what we do is we provide that meter to cash cycle for the landlord and we have an independent system that ensures that the tenant is actually getting charged for what they're supposed to be consuming. And have you have you had cases where, I mean, if you, this is a real opportunity to perhaps get off gas. If, if, you know, if you've, got, you've got three bills now, I guess, if you're with your energy, if you've got your solar, you've got your grid energy, electricity and your um, gas. But have you seen cases where they've taken this as an opportunity to perhaps remove gas entirely from a home and go all electric? Uh, n- no, but we, we do offer another product where we eliminate the second grid bill. What tends to happen there is the landlord will put the, that bill under their name and right. essentially they just get one bill and the utility becomes the landlord and they just get it, it becomes less bills. So, so who underwrites that, Chris? How's the that? landlord. The landlord, so they become a retailer, become an energy yeah, retailer. Uh, there's an that? exemption under the Act that allow, under the energy regulations that allow a landlord to do that. Right. So uh, as long as they don't do it too much or too often. Right. Um, yeah. We're in the studio today speaking to Chris Marax uh, from Matter Solar. Chris, I just wanted to sort of follow up. In terms of the, the renter obligation, how does that work in terms of their relationship with this sort of system in terms of being obliged to, to take this on? How do you sign them up to this? I mean, it's very easy if you're offering a 20% discount, but what if they don't? Or the new person moves in and says, well, I don't want to be part of this. I, I've got some other 20% discount because I work for Energy Australia or one of the other big retailers. How does that work? So what happens is we provide a a one-stop shop for the landlord and for the tenant. Once the landlord says, look, I'm interested, we put together a, a business case for the landlord and that spells out you know, what their returns will be and so on. And the other thing that we also provide is a sign-up process to explain to the tenant what the advantages are to them, how much they'll save. Sometimes we'll get a, a copy of their energy bill to then use their consumption to feed to them what they're likely to get. As, as a benefit and then we work with the real estate agent as well uh, sometimes uh, it gets written into a lease so that it just becomes a standard clause to a lease right. or there could be a, a, another side agreement which is a you know another way of doing it and we sign the tenant up and the deal to the tenant is very simple whatever solar power you consume you pay for at this rate if you consume zero you pay zero uh, if you consume a lot of energy, you'll pay at a fixed rate. And that's as simple as that. And I guess if the second bill coming from the grid is, is still there, it's still active, then you're meeting all your obligations around you know, power of choice and all that as well. Is that correct? Yes. So this happens behind the meter. So whatever happens behind the meter... Stays behind the meter. Stays behind the meter. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yes. Okay, great. Well, you know, you spoke about okay, 30% of Australians are renters. Only 1% of those would have solar on their roofs that would take advantage of. But... Of course, the elephant in the room is many of those renters would live in multi-dwelling buildings. And so right now we've spoken about the one-to-one relationship. And so, yeah, one owner has the title on their land, they own the roof, and then you've been able to create a model whereby they can own the solar and then give some of the benefit back to the renter. But what happens in those scenarios where you have multi-dwelling scenarios where you know the vast majority, I'd say, of renters live? Actually, they don't. Oh, really? Yeah, so... Um, give us some you, numbers, Chris, if you can. I mean, because yeah, we're, we're inner-city Richmond people and we well, look that's around right. and we go... that's right. We don't see enough, enough of the suburbs. That's um, right. <laughs> there's about 30% of Australia rents in households. That's about, call it 2.4 million. 
uh, of the 2.4 million dwellings, about 600,000 would be in uh, multi, Is that all? multi-tenanted uh, wow. buildings. So the majority of Australia actually lives in a single dwelling Semi-detached. Uh, uh, premise. Yep. Uh, of the ones that live in multi-tenanted buildings, or we call them dense communities, you can still do this, but it, it, the practicality of doing it on a tenant basis doesn't work. So our technology works in... Uh, in single dwellings, in dual occupancy, and it'll work in a multi-tenancy. What we found in multi-tenancy, it's just mathematics. There's only a, so much of roof space on a, on a block of flats. Mm-hmm. If you've got 10 apartments in that block of flats, you divide the energy that's produced by 10 apartments. And so each apartment really doesn't get much based on the roof space. If the community is horizontal, it works really well, like a uni campus or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or like a retirement village yeah. or something like that. That it's that would work fantastic. But if you go into something like a Eureka Tower, <laughs> well, yeah, you, 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 your energy, we call it energy density, the energy that you produce divided by the amount of tenancies. Yeah, we, we have a guy who we interviewed who was doing solar windows. So until when that comes through, then you can focus oh, on that. Okay. Yeah, Eureka Tower. But yeah, it's, it's interesting what you say. Do you generally say do you want five kilowatts per dwelling? I mean, you know, size of household notwithstanding, but is that your general rule of thumb? Yeah, when we, when we started off, we offered all these options and all these different sizes. And it turned out five kilowatt tends to be the sweet spot for some reason. Mm-hmm. It also tends to be something that's really easy for the solar installers to, to do. Uh, it takes them about a day to put one on. If you do something less, you sort of, uh, the economics start to deteriorate because you're still taking out a crew to do to a job. Yep. It won't take a day. So it's about five kilowatt for a place. And obviously, if you live in an apartment, it might be three. Yeah, uh, uh, Chris, can I sort of follow up on that? Because intuitively, it would sort of make sense to think, well, if you know you've got you know seven or eight people in, in a, a, a multi dwelling, it would make sense to try and think, well, can we fit thirty or fifty on here? What are some of the sort of upper limits that you might experience, and why couldn't we just put fifty on there and divide it up? I mean, what's the? Is there some technical upper limits or some interaction with the grid? How does that? The main constraining factor is the regulations with the grid. So you are limited to the size of solar system you can put onto a particular property because it, it really messes about the grid. Mm-hmm. And so typically the cutoff thing, depending on which state you are, is around 25 to 30 kilowatts. If you go beyond that, you actually, the approvals take much longer. You need more engineering. All those kind of things start to come in. And also, you then start to add, you know, three-phase, you know, you got into different kinds of inverters. The technology becomes a bit more complicated. And so, about 30 is the cutoff, and it's really a... Do you need specialist installation at that point? Because I know everyone's used to gearing up to do five. Do you really need electricians that are used well, to working on those large scale? You need to know scale? what you're doing. You know, you would also, but it's the very fact that you could potentially be putting a lot of a lot of kilowatts into the grid and the grid needs to manage that we get approached by a business and we get approached by a lot of stratas at the moment the solution for a strata is you provide the energy to the body corporate yeah and and that works Uh, that works really well but the problem is in a particular street the poles and wire people the grid might only approve one or two or three uh, blocks of units what you'll find is it'll be first come, first serve. If, if you're the fifth, you might not get approval because there's just too much solar on that, on that, right. uh, on that 
part of the system. So yeah, so we'll pass some kind of threshold where they go, we don't want to, we don't want to do that anymore. But so it was interesting what you're saying because that was my next question around it. Would, so the body corporate would take that on, um, and then those who, of course, are members of that, you know, owners, owner group within that that building would then, of course, pay their their portion of it. And then when it comes to usage, I guess I guess it's all based on how much the individual tenant is using. So if I am home all day, then I might get more benefit from that solar than my neighbour who is who is working in the city. Is that is that generally how it works? It is a spot on. So our, our technology that we've created uh, can actually measure the solar energy that's generated and can also measure who consumes that solar energy. And so what we're able to do is provide the bill to the person who uses that solar energy at a particular rate. In order to uh, do it properly, we've actually invented a new thing called blended energy, which mm. is blending grid with, with solar. And so that's, that is, tends to be the technique that's used in multi-tenancies. Otherwise, what you'd have to do is actually run separate wires for solar electricity to every apartment. Right, right, right. Yeah, so so what we do is uh, we've come up with a novel way of doing it that's highly accurate and, and allows uh, solar benefits to be shared in the community. And, and Chris, the, we've had obviously the big cost curve reduction has happened with solar. The one thing that people are talking about now is storage. How do you see storage changing the model here? I mean, you, you know, in terms of being able to fix some of those things and maybe letting you have slightly larger systems, uh, how do you see storage playing into the model of, of what you're doing? Because it's coming. The, so, yeah. the, the pattern that happened to solar will happen to storage. That pattern's called a learning curve or an experience curve. And basically, as people, as volume increases and people get more uh, experience on how to deploy that particular technology, the cost falls, and we expect battery uh, storage to fall quite significantly. At the moment, the economics aren't there, but the economics were never there for solar, you know, 10 years ago. We expect the economics to improve with volume and with time. So, but but then how does that interact with your business model? Do oh, you okay. put larger systems on? Do you pre? Do you set them up now, knowing that you know we're going to put these in place, knowing we're going to make the systems a bit bigger than we think we should, mm. because we know that the storage is coming? How, how do you uh, you know put manage the frames that up at least? Get the frames up. Generally, you will install solar for today. Storage will become viable based on the turnaround cost for putting an electron into the battery and back and it's really the cost between what it costs to put it in and what to, uh, and to bring it back out. So our technology already works with batteries. It's just uh, it's just the economics don't work. We are still though in the retail tariff world though, aren't we? We're in that world where you're still only going to get the same amount coming out from a feed-in tariff, whether it's coming out of your battery or coming directly from the solar. So unless you're seeing the benefit, then yeah, we can understand that. But we've spoken to some startups here on this show where they're talking about tapping into the wholesale market. And they're saying, okay, you, if you're just selling back at the retail rate, yeah, you can't really see the benefit based on what the cost is of the battery. But if you're able to, say, withhold grid demand at key moments when the wholesale price is high or even sell back in, then batteries are in the money now. So do you see that those kinds of opportunities also? Um, no. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, the, reason, the reason we don't is basically our view is the wholesale game is pretty much dominated by the whales, by the big players. So if you come in with, and you're a small player, I mean, someone withholding a large generator from feeding into the grid can drive the price up. Yep. And conversely, uh, they can pump out energy and drive the price down. 
So you're you're really you're really a price taker. Uh, we've looked at it quite carefully. We we don't think that's really the answer. The the way the market's structured, uh, that's not the way that you would exploit batteries. Uh, okay. and, and for us, the real um, the real power comes from a swarm of decentralized assets, not trying to game the wholesale market. And and so um, even if we ignore the sort of wholesale market, what about things like the frequency regulation market and some of those other services that you know the Dex platform and others are looking to exploit? You know, is this something that you could potentially get another value stream out of that through batteries or even some of your smart IoT stuff that's enabled to sort of shift some of those loads of pool pumps into the day or turn them off suddenly if the evening if you, demand. If you knit together a lot of your customers, you become a whale, don't you? Potentially, you do. and that's where I think the value comes. The analysis we've done is you you need to have something in the order of a hundred thousand customers to actually be able to be significant and to drive what we call the network effects or or the benefits out of doing that. But but you have to be at a certain scale to answer the other question. Absolutely, if you can get if you're a large player and you've got lots of assets under management, you can certainly enter into contracts with other players that give you money for for making the grid more stable or, or work better for sure. Yeah, so you you could then yeah add those income streams as well for the for the That's owner. Right. Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. So thanks for joining us today, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fantastic. You've been on the Beyond Zero show brought to you by Climate Solutions Think Tank Beyond Zero Emissions. If you want to listen to more or find out more about what we do, go to bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. I'm Matt Grantham. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.